Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, we're joined by Jonathan Reich. He is the founding partner of Reich Law, um, an international law firm that specializes in uh, anatomizing how Russia abuses the global anti-money laundering system, which is kind of paradoxical because when you think of Russia, you think more of money laundering, not anti-money laundering. But one of the reasons I wanted to have Jonathan on the show is he's dealt with a lot of clients, uh, including criminalized uh, dissidents who've fled Russia or have been forced out of the country, who have been, shall we say, trailed and harassed and targeted by the Kremlin using international institutions that are designed to protect people from depredations of the state. Um, including Interpol, international banking, and so on and so forth. Uh, Jonathan, uh, it's good to have you on the show. And I know, I mean, this is your bread and butter, and this is something that's sort of not very well discussed or reported on in the West. I mean, you, you occasionally get little bits and bobs. You know, there's Bill Browder's best-selling book, Red Notice, which is its, itself a, a hat tip, I suppose, to how Interpol has been instrumentalized by Russia and designed to make this person incapable of travel beyond the confines of the UK because he'll be arrested and then extradited. Um, but you deal with a lot of people who have been victimized by this, this kind of system. Can you describe broadly, like, what is it that Russia is doing and how is it able to do it uh, and how are people being, what, forced into bankruptcy or being prohibited from using Western commerce and financial markets to their own advantage? I mean, describe the lay of the land here. Thanks so much for having me on, Michael. And it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to to come on and, and discuss this with you. As you know, I've been a fan of your work for a long time uh, and really tip of my hat to you and the other investigative journalists who are really working hard to uncover a lot of Russia's depredations, and I think particularly Russia's successful efforts to weaponize a lot of the institutional legal structures to target dissidents abroad. I think you're asking a, a lot of the right questions here, and I think the analogy uh, that you started to draw with Interpol is a great place to start. We've built up over the past many decades, a lot of really essential multilateral institutions and systems to do great work. Interpol helps target criminals throughout the world, just like our anti-money laundering regimes do a lot of essential work tracking down the money, which is the lifeblood and proceeds of some really heinous crimes international criminal organizations involved in drug trafficking, arms smuggling, human trafficking, things that, that we want to stop, things that, that we want to track down. The problem arises, and I think this has been really well documented with respect to Interpol, with the question of whether those institutions are well designed to protect against potential bad actors and misusers of those levers of power. And I think you know, as I said, and as I know you've done a lot of work on, Interpol is a particularly good example where the story has been told, obviously, in Bill Browder's case and in the case of many other Russian, Turkish, Venezuelan, Chinese individuals who have been targeted by authoritarian countries, which as sovereign powers have the ability to use their membership within Interpol to leverage politically motivated criminal allegations within the home country to generate what are effectively international arrest warrants and request the cooperation of the entire global law enforcement mechanism to assist them. And I think that that's really similar to what's going on to potentially an even greater extent within the anti-money laundering enforcement regime. Taking one step back there, uh, for a lot of people who maybe aren't as immersed in this area, nearly every country globally has what's called a financial intelligence unit or a part of their law enforcement, which is dedicated to tracking financial crimes, specifically financial crimes involving money laundering, illicit transfers, transfers of proceeds that are allegedly tied to crimes. These financial intelligence units, or FIUs, can go by various names. Here in the United States, the organization is called FinCEN. 
uh, and they work closely with banks, brokers, other financial institutions to ensure that those institutions have sufficiently tight money laundering and know your client or KYC procedures in place to prevent using those institutions to transfer illicit funds. In other countries, they may just be called the FIU, or in the case of Russia, the agency is known as Ross Fin Monitoring, short for Russia Financial Monitoring. All of these organizations work very closely together. And this is important because what we've seen through working through with a, a number of our clients, particularly from Russia, is that Ross Fin Monitoring has gone above and beyond to develop relationships with the FIUs of other countries throughout the world and really serves as a far more palatable and reputable representative of the Russian government in terms of international cooperation than, say, agents from the FSB or obviously, you know, the GRU, SVR, or even general prosecutor, a Russian general prosecutor's office might be. Well, let me let me stop you there. If I can. I mean, why is that the case? Given Russia is is a notorious kleptocracy. I mean, you've got a host of American EU sanctions against Russian businessmen, Russian uh, state-run companies, non-state-run companies and, and enterprises, some of them registered in the West, uh, including Yevgeny Prigozhin's kind of empire for disinformation, mercenary activities, and so on and so forth. Why is Rosfin monitoring considered to be a somehow more hygienic or, or credible organization than, as you mentioned, the FSB, SVR, GRU? It's a great question. I think Russia has very savvily realized that they need to have some uh, means of external cooperation. And going through law enforcement is a really probably is probably the easiest path for them to pursue there. There's a general presumption within the law enforcement community that other law enforcement officials and officers are on the right side. Um, and that they're all going, there's a collegiality, that they're all going after criminals together. And I think that holds true, especially within the financial law enforcement community and the financial regulation community. I think that Rossman monitoring um, initially was set up a little over 20 years ago. The first head was a, was a Putin appointee and was, you know, at that time, obviously necessary in order to clean up a lot of um, really endemic corruption uh, that was pervasive throughout Russia through the late 90s and early aughts and did affect some positive change there. As with many of the, I think, law enforcement agencies and also regulatory agencies within Russia, what we've seen certainly over the last 10 to 15 years is a consolidation of centralized control and authority there and leveraging of these kind of robust powers on behalf of the Kremlin's political, political agenda, as opposed to in service of the rule of law. And I think the reputation and role of Rossfin monitoring really neatly parallels the reputation and role of other financial regulatory organizations within the Russian Federation, such as the Central Bank of Russia, where you have the head central banker, Elvira Nebulina, a direct Putin appointee, being honored within the European community and lavished with awards through 2016, 17, 18 um, for helping to clean up the Russian banking system while at the same time presiding over the largest expropriation of assets from privately held banks in order to move those assets into the control of Russian state-owned banks or banks closely affiliated with the Kremlin. Similarly, you have the Russian Depository Insurance Agency, DIA, or as it's known in Russia, ESFE, presiding over the uh, bankruptcies of all registered investment companies within Russia and assisting with the liquidation and in many cases pocketing of assets from those financial institutions over the course of the last seven to eight years. 
the DIA, the central bank, Rossfin monitoring, all of them liaise directly with their counterparts in other countries on an equal footing. And I think it's largely because they're viewed as financial regulators and financial law enforcement officials who do some good and have really helped stabilize what was viewed as a precarious free-for-all within the Russian economy, certainly coming out of the late 90s, early 2000s, that they still have that imprimatur of legitimacy that, say, the FSB doesn't. That lets them kind of liaise much more directly and with a lot of credibility with the financial intelligence units, with the central banks of, of other countries. Give me some examples of how Rostfin monitoring or even other state institutions go about sort of persecuting somebody who has every right to not only be outside of Russian Federation territory, but to live safely and securely in the West and do business in the West. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that is difficult as a journalist, and I mean, I'm sure you come across this too in your own work, is it's very easy for someone to announce, I am a dissident, right? I have been persecuted by my authoritarian government. You all know that it's an authoritarian government. So per force, I must be a victim. Well, in some cases, you have businessmen who are leaving Russia who have conducted criminal activities, right, or have been credibly accused of, of doing so, who now want to kind of reinvent themselves as, you know, in effect, um, political prisoners on the lamp, right? So getting, drilling down to the bottom of, you know, where do some of these allegations have merit versus when is this sort of a trumped up campaign to silence somebody who's been the victim of corporate raiding or a hostile takeover, or as you say, kind of like the, the state enforced bankruptcy and expropriation of private enterprise. How do we kind of sift through all of this? Because it's, it's very murky stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And I think it's that murkiness which the Russian agencies really leverage and take advantage of um, and have managed to figure out how to use and abuse with increasing levels of sophistication. I would say that the efforts by agencies like Rossfin Monitoring really start at home. So, for example, um, I know that the Western press has really covered extensively the recent labeling of Alexei Navalny's political campaign offices, as well as the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which, which he founded um, over a decade ago, as extremist organizations within Russia, which effectively neutered them and has rendered them illegal in terms of their operations. What's more so, any financial contributions to them could also place the donors in a precarious legal state and liable for criminal sanctions internally within Russia, prosecution, potential jailing. That was Rossfin monitoring, which internally labels them as such. That is a function of their robust anti-money laundering and financial regulatory powers within Russia. I think a good example of the level to which they're really willing to use them in service to the Kremlin um, for overtly political reasons. That extends, as you alluded to, beyond Russia's borders as well. And to do that, Rossfin Monitoring coordinates with financial intelligence units abroad. The, the way in which they can do that is largely unmediated and unregulated, in contrast to, say, even an application to Interpol which does need to go through at least cursory examination and for which there is a mechanism for the affected targeted party to contest any sort of Interpol red notice or diffusion, which is being sent out to the other member states at the request of Russia or whichever state is actually submitting the request to Interpol. As you and I have actually discussed previously, I don't think it's a particularly good system within Interpol. It has a lot of flaws and needs a lot of work, but at least there is a direct system. Well, there's also, I mean, truth be told, there's a problem with how the United States, I mean, you mentioned FinCEN. Mm -hmm. uh, there was that great BuzzFeed investigation into FinCEN essentially knowing about all of these money launderers who are transacting business in the West, including in the United States, and simply not enforcing their own rules and regulations, right? Yeah. I mean, I've reported on stuff that FinCEN 
has done with respect to what was it called? The, the Federal Bank of the Middle East. You couldn't come up with a more central casting name than that, which had gone into um, which had, had fallen apart. But it was essentially the place where Prokhorov agents who were involved in Syria's chemical weapons program were parking their money before it was resolved. So I think part of the problem here, I mean, and you've, you've alluded to this, is that the West becomes complicit in Russia's persecution of dissidents or, you know, kind of fugitive businessmen, simply because, A, on the one hand, it's taking these allegations seriously and crediting as transparent and above board organizations that it knows to be dirty and to be essentially just levers of Putin's dictatorship. But also it's not doing its own house cleaning. It's not it's not enforcing its own covenants. I think that's definitely the case. And, you know, looking at the recent release from the Pandora Papers archives, obviously, you see just how many suspect parties are leveraging U.S. investment structures, which I don't believe to be inherently immoral, unethical, or certainly illegal. But you know, they're agnostic structures, but they are prone to abuse. And I think what we're seeing is that structures that are prone to abuse, absent, consistent regulation and enforcement are going to be abused, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. And that sophisticated authoritarian regimes are going to find ways to abuse them um, and are going to avail themselves of that. The Going back to your earlier question, though, I think you're right about this murkiness question. A lot of folks leave Russia, leave China, leave other authoritarian countries for various reasons, sometimes with criminal charges coming hot on their heels. And the question is, how do we kind of disambiguate between those which are legitimate criminal charges because, hey, this person stole money or, hey, this person killed someone or did something really bad versus hey, these seem to be trumped up or politically motivated. I think it's actually interesting that we have almost, I think, a system for evaluating these types of cases from the way that we investigate money laundering, ironically enough. Money laundering itself is kind of an amorphous crime because all it is is basically moving the finances that are the proceeds of a criminal act. Transferring money is in and of itself not an overtly criminal act. It's the fact that that money was tainted from the beginning, which makes it money laundering. And so figuring out was this transfer money laundering or not requires some digging and oftentimes is also kind of a murky endeavor. And so what courts have generally come up with and prosecutors rely on are these kind of emblematic fact patterns that they look to and they call them badges of fraud or or kind of indications of of money laundering. Is there a real inherent problem here which looks like you were doing something wrong? And the types of things that you look for are, was there a real business purpose that would justify this transaction? Are you kind of just layering shell company on top of shell company on top of shell company? Are you making lots of back-to-back same-day transfers of funds seemingly without reason that look like they're designed more to obfuscate the source of funding and ownership than anything else? I think you can kind of take that same concept of badges of fraud or in this case, maybe badges of corruption, and apply that to this type of enforcement and these types of targeted cases led by organizations like Rossfin Monitoring. And at, maybe start off by asking yourself, what exactly are the charges in this case? Because oftentimes Russia devolves back to a bunch of tried and true criminal charges, embezzlement, Oddly enough, a lot of those embezzlement charges relate to a business owner or shareholder allegedly stealing money out of their own business, which is kind of a bizarre scheme. (laughs) That's what famously they they did that to Kodakovsky, I think, in the the second trial, right? He was stealing from himself. Exactly right. And kind of my response to that always is kind of like, there are much easier ways to take your own money out of your own company than allegedly embezzling it. Right. I think also, though, there's like a there's sort of a, a categorical point to this, which is, look, even if these people are guilty of financial misappropriation, criminality, 
the very fact that they're being sought to be extradited to a country that does not, you know, in a major key, does not have a, an independent and fair legal system or justice system should preclude the West from essentially handing these people over, right? They're not going to get a fair trial, which is itself a crime. Uh, so we do not want to be complicit in, in a, a hostile foreign state's commission of crime. So in a way, I mean, you know, I, I'm playing devil's advocate with myself. Yes. On the one hand, how do we know these guys are above board and, and aren't simply reinventing themselves as heroes when in fact they're villains? But on the other hand, it really doesn't matter, does it? Because look where they're, they're being sought after. I think where, where it comes to extradition and sending someone back to rot in a prison cell in Lafortovo and to, you know, maybe sit in pretrial detention for five years before they get slapped with a max sentence in a kangaroo court in the Basmani district of Moscow with a sanctioned judge presiding over it. Sure, I think that that's definitely the case. I think it becomes this question of legitimacy does become very important, though, when we're looking at how should the West be regulating and assisting uh, Russian agencies like Rossfin monitoring within their own borders. So should the FIU in a European country like MROS, the FIU for the state of Switzerland, be cooperating with Russia and freezing assets held on account just because someone is alleged to have committed a financial crime in Russia, particularly if those allegations have a lot of these badges of corruption. So if they're kind of one of these kind of comical embezzlement cases, if the target in question has a public reputation for, you know, aligning and supporting the opposition, whether it's, you know, Alexei Navalny or other outspoken uh, critics of the regime? Do they have ties to independent press within Russia? Um, have they been responsible for or tied to any moves against senior leaders within the part within within Putin's regime? And I think then the third question is, who exactly is doing the targeting? Because there is a cadre, as you know better than most, of Russian lawyers, prosecutors, governmental officials who seem to pop up again and again in these highly corrupt, politically motivated expropriations. So whether it's someone like Viktor Grin, the Russian deputy general prosecutor who was responsible for prosecuting Sergei Magnitsky posthumously after he had already been killed in order to find him guilty of the tax fraud that he himself uncovered and blew the whistle on, whether it's someone like the sanctioned lawyer Andrei Pavlov, who ran the Quorum Law Firm, which was also involved in the elaborate Magnitsky tax fraud scheme, and is now pursuing any number of former Russian bankers who supported Alexei Navalny and fled the country through his new role at the DIA. Natalia Veselnitskaya. Natalia Veselnitskaya, absolutely. The humble, know-nothing know lawyer from the Moscow Sticks who suddenly got rich one year when she befriended Yuri Chaika and now has been uh, indicted by the Southern District for, um, I forget what the actual charge I is. I believe but it was obstruction of justice. Obstruction yeah. of justice, right? right? Writing for the Russian Prosecutor General's office, the legal briefs <laughs> that were sent to New York for a case that she herself were de was defending the... Uh, the defendant. So, yeah, no, it's it's remarkable that that you have these sort of seemingly professional figures who are, I mean, I just see them as plenipotentiaries of the regime. They're not doing their own work. They're at the behest of of the government. Yeah, I mean, and I would add one more name to that list, which is Kirill Trikalin, was uh, who is the uh, disgraced FSB captain who uh, presided over the FSB's K-Directorate, which oversees their uh, economic investigations, and who was found with nearly $200 million in cash strewn about a Moscow apartment and was arrested for that. Apparently, he was collecting all of this as, as bribe money to pay out, among other uh, Russian officials. and got on the wrong side of someone and had this kind of explode in his face. Uh, his partner, Valery Miroshnikov, 
who was the deputy head of the DIA for many years and is now on the run as part of, of that criminal investigation as well. I mean, you're dealing with some of the most corrupt of the corrupt. And when you see those names pop up in investigations, in cases targeting individuals abroad, I think that's a huge red flag in terms of is this a legitimate investigation or is this something which is more than likely politically motivated and needs to be diligenced out with, with, with a lot more care. And I think that that's a lot of the work which isn't being done, unfortunately, by other countries' FIUs when they receive outreach from Rossfin Monitoring. The head of Rossfin Monitoring, Yuri Chikhanshin, who is also a Putin appointee, a direct Putin appointee, I think also falls into this kind of scope of who are the cast of characters who we probably shouldn't be putting a lot of trust into if they're the ones leading the charge against an individual, an, a group of entity, businesses abroad. I can give you actually one interesting case study related to a client group that I've been working with for a few years. Their bank in Russia, pro-business bank, was a privately owned mid-sized bank, probably about 17, 16, 17,000 employees at its peak and became, I think, initially targeted by the Russian government um, for their early affiliation with Alexei Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation going back nearly a decade ago. Mr. Navalny was invited to offer the keynote speech at one of their large management conferences. And based on the success of that, the shareholders and executives at ProBusiness Bank began to work on a cashback credit card called the Navalny card, which would have sent a percentage of the proceeds of every transaction to Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, FBK, and provided it basically with an ongoing evergreen financial source of backing. This, when it became known to the Kremlin, resulted in you know, the expected backlash and the, the, the crackdown was very swift, very severe, and they were basically forced to shutter that program. About a year and a half later, when Alvira Nebulina became the head of the Central Bank of Russia and began expropriating bank assets, the pro-business bank subsidiary bank, which was working on the Navalny card, was one of the first that she targeted and shut down. They seized the license of that bank, they delicensed it and, and shut that bank down. And in the wake of that, uh, the pro-business bank executives began to become increasingly concerned at the end of the day. Long story short, after a series of extortion efforts went nowhere, whereby various officials, Russian officials and their proxies tried to extort a percentage of ownership of the bank from the shareholders, ProBusiness Bank and its entire financial institution was, was seized, delicensed, the assets were stripped, handed over to state-owned banks or privately held banks that were affiliated with Kremlin insiders. And the rest of the pieces were sold off in sham auctions at uh, you know ridiculously devalued part prices. Ultimately, the shareholders and a number of the senior executives were charged with financial crimes, despite the fact that the Russian investigative committee initially found that there was no basis for criminal charges. That decision was reversed only after the DIA and FSB became heavily involved in the case. Rossfin Monitoring entered the case in 2017 when Yuri Chikhanshin began outreach to other FIUs seeking their assistance to target the former shareholders of ProBusiness Bank abroad. And what's interesting about this is that the only countries where Chikhanshin and Rossfin Monitoring were really able to get significant footing in their efforts were initially the small principality of Liechtenstein in Central Europe and the Cook Islands. And what's interesting about both of those is that they're generally recognized as kind of incredible safe havens for people to move money to that they want to protect for asset protection reasons from foreign governments. And again, I think similar to what was exposed in the Pandora Papers, this is an example where 
you have a fundamentally amoral structure or structures, which can be used to hide money for US tax evasion or hide money for all sorts of nefarious purposes but also to kind of protect money against the efforts of corrupt authoritarian regimes that are trying to come after it. What was unusual in this, in this case with respect to the pro-business bank shareholders is that Chekhanshin was able to get support and cooperation from the FIUs in both Liechtenstein and the Cook Islands proactively when he wasn't able to get that from the FIUs in most anywhere else. And after doing some public document research, we were able to uncover what we think is the reason why. It turns out that these FIUs have a trade association, like, you know, international accountants or, you know, different bar associations within the legal community or different medical associations might have. And like all of those, they actually hold, you know, pre-COVID times, these international conferences. They have these big junkets where they all get together and slap each other on the back for the great job that they're doing, kind of fighting money laundering worldwide and talk about how they can do an even better job. And they give out awards for the best anti-money laundering enforcement cases every year. As it happens, back in 2012-2013, Rossman Monitoring hosted one of these large annual conferences. I believe it was the, the 20th plenary conference in St. Petersburg. And coincidentally, Rossman Monitoring also won the award for best anti-money laundering enforcement case that year. The head, the chairman and vice chairman of the awards committee that gave that award to Yuri Chekhanshin and Rossman Monitoring were named Daniel Thelisklaff, who became the head of the FIU in Liechtenstein, and Phil Hunkin, who became the head of the FIU in Cook Islands. And so you have these two guys who were photographed grinning on either side of Chekhanshin at this huge, lavish trade association party thrown by Rossman Monitoring as they're handing him an award celebrating how Russia is just fantastic and a leader in the anti-money laundering community. Picking up the phone five years later when Yuri Chekhanshin calls them and says, hey, I've got this enforcement case where I'm going after these guys who we think embezzled money from their own company and are now fleeing the country. Pay no attention to the fact that, you know, we're probably going after them because they were public supporters of the opposition and the anti-corruption movement. Please go ahead and seize all their assets and give us as much cooperation as possible. And I mean, what are the chances that these former heads of FIUs and European countries, when they retire, go to work for some Russian state or kind of virtual state enterprise or company. The Schroederization, I suppose, of, of the European elite, as, uh, as Tom Ilvis calls it. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing, right? It's Western institutions that have been stood up to do law enforcement or to protect national security and sovereign interests are essentially, they've become tools or implements for the bad guys to use and exploit, right? All you have to do is create a kind of pantomime of the rules and law-based order and kind of tick some of the boxes and make sure your documents look proper and you will be taken seriously. And in some cases, yeah, I mean, if you've got cronies or people who you've cultivated and somehow charmed your way into their thinking that you're an honest broker, uh, the West is your playground, right? I mean, that's, that, that is always the, the kind of fundamental baseline in any investigation of this, this nature, right? Kleptocracy, whether it's coming from Russia or from Turkey or from China, cannot succeed internationally without conspirators. And always the case that those conspirators are us. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's important there to kind of differentiate between conspirators like you have recently been in, uncovered in Switzerland, where the Attorney General Michael, Michael Lauber was impeached and one of his deputies has been convicted for corruption, for taking 
out and out bribes from Russian officials. And there's kind of this eyes wide open, I am kind of going over to the other side and basically buying into this corruption because either I want to get paid or someone has compromised on me and and, and I'd rather comply because I think that there's some chance that this won't eventually come out, which is never the case. The other, I think, more prevalent and far more insidious mechanism is where you have law enforcement officials who can say to themselves, I'm one of the good guys. I'm doing the right thing. I'm going after the bad guys, but they're doing it with a level of willful ignorance and out of a desire to probably forward their own careers more than anything else. I mean, we saw that case in Cyprus when the deputy attorney general Elena Loisidu's emails were hacked, and it turned out that she was basically moonlighting as a special assistant to uh, members of the Russian general prosecutor's office, helping them target dissidents in Cyprus and go after them. And she wasn't taking a payoff. All she was asking for in return was Russia's endorsement of her being nominated to a position with one of the European international courts, I believe, or inter international legal enforcement bodies. There you're just looking at this really kind of parochial, almost mundane career advancement as a legitimate goal. And at the same time, furthering this type of kind of authoritarian corruption. Going back to what you said earlier, I think you know, again, Interpol is a really instructive example here where we've set up really great multinational systems to do good things. And we've set up good internal systems um, within liberal democracies to do really important work on the law enforcement side. The problem is we haven't constructed moats or gates that are strong enough to withstand toxic inputs from bad actors who now have access to these systems. You know, once we let in the states which are fundamentally illiberal and don't have the same respect for the rule of law and aren't going to kind of put in the same legitimate inputs, they're able to kind of poison the well and get the results that they want. The sad part is these systems are all functioning exactly as they're designed to, given the legitimacy of the inputs. It's when you have an illegitimate input coming from Russia, from Turkey, from China, that you end up w- with with these problems. And that's what we're seeing here. And the results really are draconian. I don't want to underplay this. For an individual who's looking to set up a new life in the United States, in Europe, in a place where they should feel safe, certainly from extradition to one of these authoritarian regimes, they can have their entire life destroyed over the course of a few months if Rossman monitoring is successful in targeting their accounts. Their account, account, all of their bank accounts can be closed, seized, frozen, lose all access to credit, be unable to open or form a business, be unable to transact, not have be able to open certainly a credit card account or a brokerage account. And for, you know, I don't know about you, but but I assume like most people, you know, we're moving to an increasingly cashless society and where we rely on kind of plastic and wire transfers and without any access to that, it just becomes it becomes difficult to live day to day. And even if you manage to get these judgments overturned, you know, as in the case with Interpol, every time the Russians push the button for a red notice, it has to be adjudicated all over again. So it's, it becomes this sort of demoralizing de- decomposition style play on your, your psyche, right? I mean, it's exhausting to keep up with. Them. Yeah. And, and it's, it's never ending. It's incredibly expensive. And if Russia's goal here really is to kind of draw out the process and drain down the finances of their target so that one, they can't fight back. Two, they certainly don't have kind of the disposable income to support the Anti-Corruption Foundation or, you know, Free Russia Foundation or any other kind of democratic movements or independent journalists challenging the Kremlin. Uh, And three, they successfully put out this cloud or shadow of criminality 
which hangs over the individual's head and everything related to them, which is going back to something you said earlier, kind of plays into this murkiness question and says, well, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there about this person. People are saying bad stuff. Banks are saying bad stuff. We should probably steer clear of them. And that has kind of an outsized, I think, negative impact and consequences for the individual. And I should note that this is this is really, we're only talking about, you know, the kind of most severe situation where Rossfin monitoring is getting directly involved. The pro-business bank case is instructive in that situation. I should also mention, by the way, this is not supposition. Rossfin monitoring has an annual update conference with President Putin, where Yuri Chachanchin sits down with him in person on camera and presents an update for the benefit of the nation in Russia about Rossfin monitoring's priorities. Uh, and going back a few years in his 2018 update to Putin, I believe it was 2018, update to, to Putin, Yuri Chachanchin specified that Rossfin monitoring had made a priority of going after quote unquote, financial criminals abroad and was enlisting the help of other FIUs in its efforts to target them and specified pro-business bank and its shareholders as a prime target of Rossman Monitoring's efforts directly to President Putin in person. So this is clearly, you know, a high value target for them, which they're they're not even shy about uh, about getting into. I think they're probably shy about the interpersonal relationships with the heads of the FIUs who were happiest to help them out. But this is something that they are overtly leveraging Rossman Monitoring's powers for similar to the way that they are using Rossman Monitoring's powers to label any questionable or, or any pro-democratic movement internally within the country as an extremist organization, similar to the way that Rossman Monitoring labels most any independent journalist or independent pub journalistic publication as uh, being financed by in, uh, outside international actors as well. I think that the, the secondary issue here is one which flies even more under the radar, which is that because anti-money laundering and know your client regulations have become such a priority for regulators and the penalties for non-compliance with them have become so onerous and really severe for the banks and brokers, the banks and brokers are not willing to take any risk, reputational, financial, on this front. And they've outsourced a lot of the compliance um, and due diligence related to their compliance in this piece to a number of web-based resources. Most of them have names like World Check or World Compliance. And what they do is basically they will run the names of bank clients and potential clients at the outset of a banking relationship or a brokerage relationship, and then on an ongoing basis to see if there's any negative information out there about them. And negative information could include criminal charges in the US or abroad. It can include public red notices through Interpol. It can also include just derogatory media reports about them, specifically related to any sort of financial crime which would put the money that they've placed into account with this institution into question, because none of the banks want to kind of have any risk of being involved in, in money laundering. The problem is twofold here. One is it's really easy to game those systems. All you have to do is really punch out a negative media article in, you know, Russian press, Kremlin affiliated press, as opposed to kind of the, the independent press at Novaya Gazeta or Medusa or others, and then just copy paste that article and have it run on a bunch of other Russian websites, maybe translated into English if you're feeling particularly motivated that day, and then pay a little bit of money to do some Google search engine optimization, wait two or three months, and all of these kind of world check, world compliance organizations are going to start picking up those articles. And what they'll do is note that there's, oh, derogatory information about this character, about this, this account holder. And they'll put out basically a short summary on top and then include those web links and publish that as a derogatory red flagged report. And what will happen nine times out of 10 is that the bank will then shut down, the, send a, a letter to the account holder saying your account is going to be shut down. 
If it's particularly egregious, they'll notify FinCEN or the FIU in their jurisdiction. And that can result in the freezing or seizure of the funds in that account. And there's no good way to really fight back against that. It's this really amorphous issue. The EU has the, the right to be forgotten. Yeah, under GDPR, you can contest this. I can tell you from experience working with clients, these companies largely hold themselves out as beyond uh, and above the law in that respect. What they say is, we didn't put this, it published this information. It was published on X, Y, and Z place on the web. You should go talk to them which of course in this case is completely ridiculous because you're not going to go to a Russian internet troll site and say, please take down this derogatory information about my client and, and expect any sort of action. If anything, you'll probably get 10 more articles about them as a result of it because they know that it's working. The only way that I've seen it work, which costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time and so is only available to a handful of high net worth clients is to hire really savvy lawyers and have them start a campaign wherein they threaten a lawsuit against the companies behind World Check, World Compliance, etc. If they don't take down the article, and you have to provide them with extensive information, in most cases, showing that the evidence in the article was patently false. I'll give you one example. Um, I have a client whose name came up in one of these kind of Russian media reports um, alongside about 10 other names of people who were allegedly indicted in a criminal conspiracy related to embezzlement. The only problem was this client was never named in any case, was never charged with anything. But this article was kind of copy pasted to a number of websites and ultimately got picked up by these compliance check companies that all of the banks use and started having their accounts come under pressure. It was only after several months of back and forth and presenting really undeniable evidence that this individual was not named in the criminal charges that these articles reported and that they were obviously patently false, that these companies agreed to take down their reports while at the same time disclaiming any responsibility for them and also saying we reserve the right to put them back up. It takes seconds to create a piece of disinformation or you know, a planted story, which unfortunately in the digital age means that you know, some dodgy blog can be credited as, as the equivalent of the New York Times or the Washington Post or ProPublica. And I mean, that's the strategy too. It's, it's flood the zone with shit and it's gonna to stick to somebody, right? And I think what we see is that with, you, you almost have a high-low strategy there. So it's a low-cost, easy disseminate through, you know, a, a whole bunch of copy-paste articles on the web, just nasty crap about, about the target, and then let Rossman monitoring at a much higher level if necessary, do the direct to law enforcement, direct to FIU outreach that it wants to do, and let those two kind of paths almost reinforce each other. And I think one of the other things that's important to underscore there is that both of those paths operate in the shadows and are almost completely unregulated. Unlike the cooperation between, say, prosecutors, which largely go through um, mutual legal assistance treaty requests, or which are far more mediated and generally go through kind of a centralized office, or even Interpol requests, which have to go through local country NCBs for review. These are kind of, you have kind of centralized, dedicated subject matter expertise of some sort. I don't know that it's always effective. I'm actually quite certain it's not always effective, but at least you have some intermediation there. Within the FIU community for financial regulators, it's largely unmediated. People can pick up the phones. There's no, they're meeting at these kind of conferences where they're kind of shaking hands and glad handing and giving each other great awards for their fantastic work. There's none of the same kind of oversight that you would expect. Um, or I think really want in that type of case. Similarly, within this kind of world check, world compliance network of web resources that the banks and brokers all rely on, there's no one actually checking them. What's also problematic there is that the banks 
specifically offload their responsibility to these reporting agencies. And these reporting agencies, similar to the way I think a lot of the credit rating agencies were, were talking uh, about their responsibilities prior to the 2008 financial crisis, they disclaim any responsibility for the reports that they're putting out. All they say is, we're just data aggregators. We're pulling information together from the web and handing it over to our clients, the banks, and then the banks and the brokers, they're the ones who have to kind of interpret this as their compliance teams see fit. So no one's actually holding the bag in terms of saying, wait a second here. This article was published on some kind of crazy, you know, nationalist Kremlin blog. Even if they know the, the provenance of this information, there's also a reluctance to want to pick a fight with a foreign government, right? I mean, especially if you're happy to take members of that government or citizens of that country's money in, in other ways, right? So, you know, you've got this, it's sacrificing one vaguely suspect or questionable businessman's account for the sake of, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of others is just, it's almost a no brainer from a, a capitalist point of view, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's because the penalties are, have become so, so severe. And I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not questioning whether we should have anti-money laundering regulation or, or whether there should be kind of robust penalties for, for this. The consequence of it, though, I think just as a matter of fact, it is very clear that financial institutions and these reporting agencies will always err on the side of guilty until proven isn't uh, conservatively shutting down the account and over and over being overly suspicious because the financial incentive for them isn't there otherwise. You know, I've spoken to senior people at um, at various banks, at, uh, you know, at all levels from bulge bracket on down. And what they've told me in no uncertain terms is that unless a client is driving a significant amount of revenue to the financial institution. And by significant, we're talking seven, eight figures, millions and tens of millions of dollars of revenue to the bank, not keeping it on account, but actually going toward the bank's own balance sheet. Um, it's not worth the risk for them to open these accounts, to maintain these accounts, because the penalties that they see, you know, um, Goldman Sachs just paid a massive penalty for their involvement in the one MDB Malaysia scandal, far less than they were afraid of paying, but still massive penalty for that. All of the other banks kind of sat up and, you know, if they weren't already kind of on notice about it, now certainly are. And so if anything, the risk tolerance there is has gotten even smaller. So the, any whiff of kind of derogatory information, especially tied to kind of financial impropriety, is basically a death knell um, for these clients. And Russia, I think, is at the forefront of authoritarian regimes that have realized this. China is close behind, um, and they're kind of watching and seeing what works the same way that they've seen what works with Interpol as well. And I think, unfortunately, unless and until we kind of consider some strong reforms to kind of create better safeguards and, and really, you know, moats to protect the castle against these types of corrupt intrusions, we're just going to see the problem getting worse and worse. Let's end on a note of what can be done to, I mean, apart from not taking Rossfin monitoring seriously, what can be done to kind of improve or rectify the situation? So it, it's, it's a great question. I think one of the resources that I've been pointing people to for the last several months is the really exceptional report uh, that Freedom House put out earlier this year on transnational repression. They did a really spectacular job of distilling down on a country-by-country -country basis um, a lot of the biggest problems that we're seeing globally and most importantly, put together a really fantastic solutions-oriented compendium at the back of ideas that people can have. So I wouldn't do it justice by trying to distill it all down into kind of, you know, a 60-second spiel, but I would definitely point anyone who's interested in, in learning more about this to the Freedom House report on transnational repression 
Uh, Nate Shankin was the primary author on it, and and he really did a fantastic job. I, I want to give want to give him and his and, and all of his colleagues a shout out for that. I think out of those recommendations, some of the critical ones are we need to devote more resources to educating and equipping our law enforcement officials and judges to distinguish between a legitimate and illegitimate foreign request and foreign actor. And I think we have precedent for that here already in in the US, where we kind of look at both standards of evidence and also we look at kind of various parties or allegations in a case, and, and we'll say, what type of level of, of scrutiny do we need to apply to this case? So if you know the UK is coming to us and asking for legal assistance in a embezzlement case, that probably you know requires a lower degree of scrutiny than if Russia is coming to us with a similar request. And then I think it also goes back to kind of this badges of corruption uh, idea that I was talking about before. Look at some of the facts of the case. Does this thing smell right? Who all is involved? And what exactly are they, are they alleging as the details here? And then lastly, I think that there are some kind of helpful measures we can take uh, on the legislative front. The TRAP Act, which has some significant provisions related to Interpol and U.S. cooperation and recognition of red notices coming out of Interpol, specifically those requested by Russia and other authoritarian regimes, is important. I think, unfortunately, some of the language there has been watered down considerably and could be beefed up to be a lot more robust. And I think paying attention to this this question of how far are we tipping the scales in our quest to kind of rid the global financial system of tainted money and kind of enforcing this anti-money laundering regime? Are we willing to go if it comes at the expense and really the livelihood, safety, and well-being of the targets of authoritarian regimes? And what are what, what are some of the more creative things that we can do to kind of better diligence those level those types of accusations and support some of the financial institutions so that they can make better choices around that instead of just making fear-based decisions with zero risk tolerance on behalf of clients like this. So it sounds like in addition to know your client protocols, you need know your country protocols for who's making requests. You need a kind of counterintelligence mechanism or capability with these financial institutions to sort of sniff out sinister work or rats, basically. And yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I wish I could be optimistic that, that it's going to improve along the lines that you've laid out, but I just, all the trend lines seem to be going in the opposite direction these days. You know, I mean, what's after the Pandora Papers, I wonder. And again, it, all, it always implicates Western institutions, which makes it very hard for us to lecture the world when we are not doing these things ourselves. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the points. Also, it starts at home, and we need to do a better job. And you know, I think whether that comes, you know, greater transparency with greater protections, I think is a great direction to move in. So, if we are kind of moving toward a ultimate beneficial ownership or UBO disclosure framework for LLCs and trusts, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think it also needs to be accompanied by protections for those UBOs and for the and, and, and for the parties involved there. So you know what? We're going to cat sunlight's the best medicine, but as part of that, we're also going to build the, that that moat in order to protect our systems from then being assaulted. Those individuals, those entities, from being assaulted by authoritarian regimes that wish them harm from abroad. So, I see all the same problems, and at the same time, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm preternaturally optimistic that you know there is a solutions-based approach where we can kind of definitely arrive at a better case. We we figured out how to build these systems to begin with, and they actually have done tremendous good, whether it's Interpol, the, AM, the anti-money laundering global regime, et cetera. I think we're at a point now where they're breaking down a little bit, and we just have to figure out how to make them better. Well, Jonathan, it's great to have you on. Um, very comprehensive and um, 
also kind of disturbing anatomy of international finance. Um, we're going to actually devote a few episodes of the show to kleptocracy, for lack of a better term. Uh, Casey Michelle, who's got a fantastic new book out about this subject, will be on soon. And Nate Sibley, who runs the Kleptocracy Initiative, the Hudson Institute, who's kind of one of the architects on the hill of building these policies that the Biden administration at least claims it wants to see instituted into law to kind of clean up our, uh, at least the domestic side of uh, financial corruption. Jonathan Reich, uh, it's great to have you and uh, be well, and we should have you back at some point if and when <laughs> all of the things that you recommended are put into practice. Inshallah. Hopefully uh, at least some of them along the way. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me, Michael. Sure, my pleasure. You've been listening to Foreign Office. We'll see you next time.